lives. That you strengthen us, you encourage us, you convict, you challenge, you build us up. All God through your spirit working through what you've written. And you know, Lord, our hearts and you know our need. And we would just surrender ourselves to you, God, um, for you to minister to us as you know that we need. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to be back with you. Uh, I was in Pennsylvania last week helping with a wedding there. Um, absolutely beautiful time. And um, appreciate John filling in for me um, while I was gone. I, don't, I wasn't um, here when all the announcements were given. Jeff, did you say anything about the flowers? The flowers are here, if you're wondering. We don't have usually two large displays of flowers because one of our, our ladies in the church passed away this week, Ruth Klimstein, and we had a funeral here at the church for her yesterday, and so the family left some of the flowers here from her funeral. Dear Saint, um, she's home with Jesus. Uh, I think she was 79. How old was she? 80, 89? 79. Okay. Um, anyway, we, just, just a wonderful lady. Brenda Ellsworth's mother. Brenda's part of the church here. And um, just very, very grateful for, for Ruth's life, a life that really was lived to the testimony and glory of Jesus. She was a lover of Christ, and that was made known in, in the way that she lived her life. And so she will be greatly missed. We've um, been slowly working through Acts here, and, um, and when we left it, Paul had just gotten saved. And Luke, um, he's giving us the kind of the mountain peaks here as he's surveying the history of the early church, and he's not always jumping down in the details and giving us everything that happened. That's just the way historical narrative works. There, there are gaps that you don't necessarily see as you read through it, but they're there. And we know there are some gaps here because of what Paul told us in Galatians 1, which we're going to look at briefly in a minute. But when we read through this account here of his conversion, it looks like he's on his way to Damascus. The Lord appears to him. He's blind for three days. He's prayed for. He preaches in Damascus. Um, he's let down through a, um, a hole in the, in the wall by a basket at night. And then he goes to Jerusalem, and he starts preaching some more, and they want to kill him too. And so then the brethren send him off um, to Tarsus. Well, that's a very condensed version here. That what I just laid out for you actually transpired over three years, and not just a few days, as we would think when we read this. And so that's important because it helps us to get a better feel for what must have been going on here with Paul. Because one thing is very clear in this passage. He want, everybody wants to kill him. <laughs> and the Christians are all afraid of him. And he could not be a more genuine convert to the faith. But nobody believes it. And this is hard. We can, we can, we can pray and pray and pray for people to come to faith in Christ. And then when they come to faith, it seems no way. There's no way that, I, I, you know, I, you've, some of you have heard my testimony. I remember in junior high, I, there, you know, I had so many boys that I, that I just hated because they were always bullying me. Not that I wouldn't have bullied them if I had been bigger, but that's another thing. <laughs> and, and so one boy in particular, my mom, she, she came into my bedroom at night and, and she knew I was not doing well. And, and she says, I want you to pray for all those boys that you hate and I'm not leaving the room until you do. 
And I said, well, you're going to be here a long time because that's a lot of boys. And she must have been tired, so she said, no, pick out the one that you hate the most and pray for him. And so I did. And I said, God, kill him. (laughs) And my mother said, no, that's not how you're supposed to pray. You know how you're supposed to pray. And I thought, well, that would be such a blessing if he would just die. And and so I knew she was not going to leave, and so I said, God, save him. And God did. It wasn't very long, maybe two weeks later, some kid walked up to me in school and said, did you hear what happened to so-and-so, the boy that I hated so much? And I'm thinking, train wreck? (laughs) Piano fell out of the sky? And it's like this guy could read my mind, because I'm just thinking all these wonderful possibilities of how he could have met his demise. And the kid says, no, he became a Jesus freak. And that was how you describe Christians back in the early 70s. And I just thought, that's amazing. I didn't know he had a soul. <laughs> now, we, that was toward the end of junior high, so I, I didn't have the chance to see that boy change. But that kid coming to Christ for me was like Saul coming to Christ for the early church. And they're going, no way. And Paul couldn't do anything to convince them. I mean, why should they trust him? The guy has been throwing people in prison, beating them, and some of those people had died as a result of Paul's actions. So you can understand there would be some reservation toward Paul and some hesitancy toward embracing him. Maybe this is just a a trick to, to get their guard down and then... Paul can learn all who the believers are, and he, can, and he can have them all arrested. So they are distancing themselves from him. So we, as I always have, have kind of read this whole account from the perspective of the disciples. They're scared. They're uncertain. They're suspicious. But I wonder how this was for Paul as well. I mean, we've all had times in our lives where our best intentions have been wrongly interpreted. No matter what you say, what you do, nobody believes that you mean well. And this went on for years for Paul. Like I said, this wasn't just a few days. In fact, historians think that from the time that he actually has begun to be embraced as an apostle, from that time to where he was first saved, was 10 years. So not just the three years from when he first got saved and then he's sent away by the believers in Jerusalem to Tarsus, but in Tarsus, he spent probably another seven years. And it took that 10 years before the church would begin to say, he's really saved. Wow. Can you imagine? 10, and all the time, He's involved in ministry, and, you know, he's witnessing, and there are people coming to faith. But nobody really believed that he was an apostle. In fact, he'll spend the rest of his life defending his apostleship. That had to be hard. So let's just jump down in the text a little bit, verse 26. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. So hold your finger here and go over to Galatians 1. So we're going to flip back and forth a little bit here. 
So Galatians chapter 1, where Paul fills in some of the details. So we'll pick it up um, in verse 13, Galatians 1.13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Jerusalem, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was, at, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And when he who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. And here's where it goes, okay? So he's saved now. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia. Luke doesn't say anything about that in Acts. And then he was in Arabia for an unspecified length of time, and he returned once more to Damascus. Luke doesn't say anything about that in Acts. So you read Acts, and he's only, he just gone from Damascus to Jerusalem. No. He was in Damascus, Arabia, Damascus, and then Jerusalem. And in the course of that time, it says in verse 18, three years went by. I think that's where the Lord Jesus was really ministering to him during that three years. I think that's when he, he would have seen Christ, truly seen him with his eyes, that the Lord appeared to him and he would have seen him. And he was being ministered to and instructed um, during that time. And then after three years, he went up to Jerusalem and became acquainted with Cephas, who is Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. Now this is what Luke is talking about, it seems. So when he's in Jerusalem, he's only there for a 15-day period. And he's principally trying to associate with Peter. Peter wants nothing to do with him. It takes Barnabas to get Saul and Peter introduced to each other. As Peter, as bold as he is, is going, "Uh uh-uh. (laughs) you can have him. And Barnabas goes and finds Saul and introduces him to Peter and Luke says to some of the other apostles. Paul says in Galatians the only other apostle that he met was James. So apparently Luke was not that successful in getting Paul introduced. It's hard to put all the pieces together, but we know there's no contradiction here. And so it says in verse 27, back in Acts 9, But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas is the go-between. He's the one who makes the introductions. I think there's a sense in which Barnabas was acting as the one who's doing the background check. And Barnabas came to the conclusion after doing his background check, Paul's legit. We don't need to be afraid of him. This is not all negative here. You know, there's one um, slam on the church is that we are often naive and too trusting. And that's a legitimate criticism sometimes for the church. We sometimes don't do our due diligence to check people out. And so this is not all a bad thing. I think it's instructive here that these men were wise enough to say it's easy to confess Jesus. We want to see the proof. 
And it probably helped Paul's case that he's being persecuted. And he's still confessing Jesus. But Barnabas, good-willed man that he was, wanted to find out the truth. Now, some people are just by nature so positive and so, so gifted towards encouragement as Barnabas was that they, don't see, they can, can't see the bad about anybody. I don't think necessarily that was the case with Barnabas, but he was probably pretty close. I remember hearing a guy one time, and he was describing an interaction that he was having with another man. In fact, it was a board, a board of a ministry, and they were discussing one particular individual, and, and this one man on the board just kept thinking of the positive things about this guy. And so finally, one person on the board says, Brother, you can find something positive to say about Satan. And the man said, well, he is persevering. (laughs) Some people are like that. And that's okay. Praise God for those individuals who are always seeing the positive. We like being around people like that. I'd much rather be around people like that than are always seeing the negative, right? But there's a balance as people of God and as a church. And as a church, we're going to have people who are a little more cautious and a little more suspicious. And we're going to have people who go, oh, everything's great. You can trust him. And we need each other to balance each other out and, and, to, and to, to caution those who run and embrace too quickly and to encourage those people who are so suspicious that they're never going to trust anybody. This is where the body comes in. And so there is a definite place for checking people out. Don't always necessarily want a Barnabas to check them out, (laughs) but there's a place where this needs to happen, even in the body of Christ. The state of Texas puts a regulation on summer camps that there have to be background checks on every person who works in a summer camp because they're dealing with children. And so we at His Hill look at that, and we do it. We're obedient to it. I see the importance of it. But I go, nobody knows these people as well as we do. We have been with these students, most of them, for nine months, working with them day in and day out. And no background check is going to reveal what we already know. But still, we see the wisdom of having a criminal background check done. And we do it. The state also says to have references. And so we do that. And not just one or two, but three references when it comes to summer camp, as I recall, what we're supposed to be, what we do. And even then, we have two weeks of staff training on top of all that, because it's amazing how much more gets exposed during the staff training. And you can have wonderful people who love Jesus, and there's not a blemish on their record, but when it comes to maybe running a rifle range, probably not the person to put there. Because they just, they're just not thinking through things like they should. Or on the repelling tower where they're tying knots, and they just can't quite get that knot. Well, they probably shouldn't be on the repelling tower, right? And so you have to do these things. You look at people carefully. You think through things. And even in a church. In North America, we've not gone through times of persecution, but we have brothers and sisters all over the world, and they have to be a bit cautious when it comes to just readily embracing people who say they're believers, but they might, might not be. 
I think this is true when it comes to marriage. And it's been my privilege over the years to have been a part of tying the knot for quite a few couples now. And most of the time, I know them pretty well. And so the one that I was with this past weekend in Pennsylvania, known them a long time now. And, and so you can stand there and go, no reservations whatsoever. But it's not always that way. I was with Kelly Doherty for his mother's funeral um, a few weeks ago, and he reminded us that his parents had known each other only six months when they got married, and that they were engaged, I think he said, after two months, that they met each other, got engaged two months later, and were married six months later, and they were married 60 years. Well, great. Praise God. But don't write a book about it and say this is the way it should be for everybody, right? There's a, t there's, there's a place to be cautious, to be prayerful, to get counsel. Make sure you know this person. Patsy and I have had, had so many cases of people who thought they were marrying the right person, only to find out when it was too late. We know one dear woman, godly woman, and she married a guy that was an absolute fraud. Claimed to be a Christian, and whether he is or not, I, I won't know, but I know that there was nothing in that guy's life that manifests a relationship with Jesus. Tragic, tragic story of what she's been through. We need to use discernment to be prudent, to be wise. This is not a negative of what the church is doing here. It's understandable that they're taking due caution with a man who's had a history of violence. But we also thank God that Paul was eventually accepted. Ten years, ten years, he was watched. And even really, again, like I said, for the rest of his life, people questioned whether he was truly an apostle. That's not all good, but it is good that they weren't just too quick, as the Bible says, to lay hands on this man. Because the Bible cautions us, don't be too quick to lay hands on somebody, meaning too quick to embrace them and to approve of them. Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles, described his conversion. Verse 28, and he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And again, what we don't, the picture we don't get here is how short of a time this was, 15 days. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. What good did that do? None. And they were attempting to put him to death. Paul's learning here as well. And, and this is where apologetics comes in. And I don't have any problem with apologetics. I've studied apologetics. I still study apologetics. But honestly, apologetics is of most benefit for Christians and not necessarily for the unbeliever. Helps me to understand my faith and to know that my faith is not misplaced. And it strengthens my faith to study apologetics. I sat under Norman Geisler for four and a half years in seminary, and I've read many of his books since that time. Um, I appreciate that man and his focus on apologetics, clear, logical, rational thought. 
good stuff. Not many people come to faith in Christ because of good, rational thought. That's sad. We have a man that we're praying for, known him for many, many years. He's had believers embedded all throughout his family and life. And he has yet to come to faith in Christ. And it's not because he doesn't know the truth. And the last thing he needs is to be argued with. I don't know what it's going to take, but I know it'll be supernatural. That God's going to have to break down the defenses and break down the wall and bring that man to faith. But he is not going to come to faith because Charlie McCall is arguing him into the kingdom. Not going to happen. He was talking and arguing, and their response was, I think we'll kill you. (laughs) Not, oh, let's get saved. And when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, and they sent him away to Tarsus. That's absolutely consistent with the Galatians account. Galatians, Paul doesn't mention Caesarea and Tarsus. He mentions the regions of of Syria and, um, and the one above that. I forget now. So, Luke is giving a little more detail. But here's the thing. I don't know how, because we know Paul's character. And we know that he is a man who's not afraid of difficulty. He's not afraid of confrontation. We read through Acts, there's going to be another place where he goes to this new town. and, And people are getting saved, but there's also a lot of opposition. And he goes, huh. And he says it in the text that we discern this is where God wanted us to be because people were getting saved and there was lots of opposition. So he goes, obviously Satan doesn't want us here. God wants us here. I'm staying. I mean, this is, this is a guy who doesn't run. Another place, they, they stone him, drag him outside of the city and leave him for dead. God raises him up again. And where does he go? Right back to the city that stoned him. This is an amazing guy. He doesn't cower. He doesn't get easily intimidated. So why did he leave Jerusalem? Well, for one, the believers wanted him to leave. That had to carry some weight with him. With the church, he's humble enough to say, you know, because a part of him, his own strength, his own force of personality, go, bring it on. Right? Bring it on. <laughs> you know, I can outsmart you. I cannot argue you. And kill me. I know where I'm going. Bring it on. But the church is saying, Paul, Saul, he's still Saul. Don't go through this. We want you to leave. For your sake, leave. But maybe they're also motivated by for their own sake. Because it says in verse 20, 31, so the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. And virtually everybody I read in preparation for, for today said there's a connection between verses 30 and 31. That the peace that they are enjoying was at least in some part because Paul was sent away. Paul was a lightning rod. Everybody wanted to kill him. And if they were going to kill Paul, then probably that would have brought repercussions on the rest of the church as well. 
And so they just want him out of their hair. But that's not why he left. I'm sure it factored in. The body of Christ is saying, go. And he was humble enough to listen. But look at Acts chapter 22. Acts 9, Luke doesn't tell us this tidbit of information. Acts 22. Verse 17, and it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So the ultimate reason Paul leaves wasn't because of fear, and it wasn't because the body of Christ was encouraging him to go. Because Jesus said, leave. And so he left. And from that point on, we have the, now the third progress report or summary statement here in Acts. The church, singular, multiple locations, Judea, Galilee, Samaria, one church, singular, was enjoying peace. They were being built up, meaning they were being edified, strengthened in their faith. They were maturing and they were going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and growing numerically. Because, in part, Paul was gone. And he didn't leave, as I've already noted, and become well-known, well-respected. He left to relative obscurity for another seven years. It had to have been very difficult. But he's, God is growing this man, maturing this man. He's suffering throughout this. And there's one of the greatest ways we suffer is being simply misunderstood, not being accepted, not being embraced. There's a suffering. And Paul's going through that during this time. We, the Catholic Church is called Catholic because Catholic means universal. And so many centuries ago, they, um, they called themselves the Catholic Church. Um, that was a bit pretentious because there were other churches that didn't necessarily agree with that new movement of Catholicism. But today when we say Catholic, we just think Roman Catholic Church. But that's not where that word came from. It, word simply means that there is one church. Wherever we go, in every city, there is one church on this planet. And that church is the body of Christ. And that's what Luke is making reference to here where he says the church throughout all these three regions. Now, there were multiple home churches, local churches, but they were all part, as we are, of one church. Sometimes we forget that, that 
whatever is going on in one corner of the planet is only a part of the bigger deal. Torchbearers is a bit of a picture of this in that we have 25 centers in 20 locations. His Hill is one of those 25 centers. 20 different countries that we're in. With all that's going on in the news recently, we've had different people who have contacted His Hill or contacted the Peter Reed, the general director for all of Torchbearers, and said, when is His Hill... When is Torchbearers International going to put out a public statement about what's going on? We haven't done that at His Hill. I have no intention of doing so. And that hasn't been done with Torchbearers International. And the general director called me this week as an American and said, what is your take on this and should Torchbearers International say something? And I strongly encouraged him not to do so. The reason for that is two things. One is our mandate is to preach Jesus, period. And it's not to necessarily get caught up in having to make public statements about everything that is a flashpoint at any given time in the calendar. J. Vernon McGee one time said, Paul never ever spoke about the condition of Roman jails and how deplorable they were, and how much they needed to be reformed. And he knew the jails from inside out. And there is not one word in any of his letters about changing the jail system and addressing the injustice of the jails. Paul was about one thing, preaching Jesus. That is the one thing that comes through in Acts. Preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. Preach Jesus. And as individual lives are changed, society will change as well. The other thing is, when you're a ministry in 20 different countries, or even a local ministry like His Hill, or a local ministry like Bernie Bible Church, even though you're very local, there are people coming from everywhere. And so what is important to us as Americans right now has no importance to somebody somewhere else. It just isn't the thing that they are living in. And so why do we need to impose upon them or even bring to their attention something that isn't of vital concern to them? And so there seems to be wisdom in just saying, no, we're going to proclaim Christ and not and these other things. And I'm not saying they're unimportant. They're very important, but they're not the main thing. And the enemy of the best is always the good. And there are a lot of good things to be concerned about that just suddenly take us away from the one thing, the main thing, the best thing, and that is speaking of Jesus Christ. So, this is a good progress report. And it tells us this first word, the church. We need to keep that in mind. What God is doing in this world is much bigger than what's happening in Bernie, or in Texas, or in the United States. Much, much bigger. They were enjoying peace. Praise God for peace. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, he said, 
First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So not only should the church function in peace, but we should pray that our societies do as well. That's not a bad thing. Does God use unrest? He uses all things. He works all things together for good. But God is a God of peace. He's not a God of disorder, of anarchy, of chaos. It is not God. He can use it, but those are not Those things are not from him. And so Paul says, pray for our rulers. Pray for all of them. All of them. Not only our president, but all the others that we don't like. Um, I like our president, but all the others that you don't like, pray for them as well. For all, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we, the church, may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So praise God. The church at this time was enjoying peace. They were maturing. They were going on in the fear of the Lord. These are unique things. Don't read this verse too quickly. We've had great peace as the church in the United States. That is changing. But in our great peace... We have not had great maturity, nor have we feared God. It amazes me today. I have, and I'm examining my own heart with this. But how we can be so sure of our forgiveness and our right standing with God and simultaneously have no fear of God. I believe it's probably the greatest tragedy of the church in North America. We are all about grace. And we say very little about holiness and about the fear of God. A healthy church is a church that is maturing and fears God. And again, I'm not just talking local church, but church universal. God wants his church to live in peace. God wants his church to be a maturing church, maturing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And God wants his church to fear him because he is a holy God. Good God, loving God, gracious God, long-suffering, merciful, amen. But a holy God and a righteous God. And they were continuing in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. No one and no one thing, no one person, no one thing can comfort the soul of a human being like God. He is the God of all comfort, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And he is the source of all comfort. One of the reasons that we so appreciate coming to church and gathering as a body is that God uses this gathering and he uses his word to comfort our souls. 
we can come so troubled with such great weight on our shoulders, anxiety, and there's something about the body gathering, and we find ourselves comforted. Sometimes we didn't even know we needed the comfort. We couldn't even put our finger on what the problem is until we gather together with God's people, we sing, we pray, we, we look at his word together, and we walk out comforted. It is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. We should not take it for granted. Nor should we look anywhere else for the comfort that we each need. And they continued to increase. And they did not increase because they had a church growth program. They increased because God did it. God causes the growth. They increased because they were simply responding to the Lord, allowing him to do this work in them. And the increase was something that everybody could say, look what God has done. Just a simple transition here, kind of a wrap-up to the introduction we have here to Paul's conversion and and now he can, he's going to drop off the scene for a little bit, and Luke will bring him back a little bit later. But now, in verse 32, he's going to bring us to Peter. And just in a couple minutes, I'm not going to spend very long on this, but there's, there's three miracles here that now Luke is going to line up for us, and the first two are here at the end of chapter 9. A miracle of a man named Aeneas who has been paralyzed, and Peter heals him. The miracle of a woman named Tabitha, or her other name, uh, in the other end uh, is also Dorcas, and she's dead, and Peter raises her from the dead. But that's just setting the stage. It's moving us toward the next miracle in chapter 10, and that's of Cornelius, a Gentile centurion who comes to faith in Christ. And that's where Luke is going to linger because that's a big deal, huge deal. And so one of the things he's setting up for us is somebody being healed of paralysis, that's a big deal. When the lame walk, makes the news. Somebody being raised from the dead, that's a big deal. It makes the news. So which is bigger, the dead being raised or the lame walking? Well, dead being raised, that's easy. So you can see the progression here. Lame man walking, dead person being raised from the dead, and now, but the bigger deal, now I keep saying this, the biggest deal, the biggest miracle is not the dead being raised, it is not the lame walking, it is simply a person coming to faith in Christ. And that's where this is headed. And that's where he's going to pause, and he's going to spend two chapters here talking about Cornelius coming to faith in Christ. It's a huge deal. Just a word about Dorcas or Tabitha. She passes away. They don't bury her. They take her up into an upper room and they put her on a table. Well, that's unusual from all we've been told coming up to this point about how they, the people in this region treated the dead. So they, they buried them immediately. Lazarus died. He was in the tomb, dead in the tomb. Jesus died, took him down off the cross, put him in the tomb. When Ananias and Sapphira died, right, man, they hit the floor and they're hauling them off to put them in a grave, Right. So it seems that, and we believe it's because of the climate, it was so hot and arid in this area that when people died, they immediately buried them. They didn't have a viewing, okay? 
This woman is different. They clean her up, they put a new dress on her, apparently, and they lay her out on a table. And then they send for Peter. Apparently, they were expecting Peter to raise her from the dead. And the church has not yet seen a resurrection. This will be the, since the church has started, Acts chapter 2, this is the first resurrection that takes place. And yet they believed that Peter could do this. And Peter will come in and pray and say, and, 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 he, and he doesn't ever take any credit for it. He says, the Lord raise you up. And as he prays, the Lord raises her up. Here's the point. Two things are going on here. One, Peter is getting prepared by God to minister to a Gentile which he would have never done, never would have gone into the man's house. But God is progressively moving Peter along, dropping down the prejudice, the, res the reservations that he has by having, first of all, he's ministering in a predominantly Gentile area. Secondly, he's having, he's having contact with, with a lame person and now a dead person. Third, he's living in the home of a tanner, and that tanner, would have, his home would have been considered defiling because he's dealt with animal skins, and that would have been unclean. And so Peter is, is, is gradually, God's working circumstantially in him to break down the reservations he has and, and that are attached to, to that old system and moving him to where he's going to be ready to minister to a Gentile that he would have never ministered to before. And the other thing is, is just this woman's being highlighted for her good deeds. And so they're told that when they, when they placed her in the upper room, and that, that in verse 36 it says, This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And they sent for Peter. And Peter came in verse 39. Peter rose and went with them. And when they had come, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and the garments that Dorcas had used, used to make while she was with them. So J. Vernon McGee says she had the gift of sewing. Um, and so, again, they, they miss her. They're grieving over the loss of this dear, precious saint. And they're just saying, Peter, can you bring her back to life? I doubt Dorcas was really excited about that. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. And man, she's got to come back. Goodness gracious. She probably came back saying, really? <laughs> I wish I'd made fewer dolies. You know? <laughs> but it's amazing. Again, I, I said at Ruth Klemstein's funeral, what a, she was a Dorcas. And not because she sewed lots of stuff, but because the compassion, the kindness, the love that was shown in that woman's life. And our faith ought to translate itself into how we live our lives. And that's the point here with this woman. There was an obituary read on the radio uh, not all that long ago, 2008, and a friend of mine got it transcribed and sent it to me. This woman was not a Dorcas. Her name was Dolores. She was born in 1929 and died in 2008. And she was preceded in death by her husband, a son, and a daughter. And she was survived by six daughters, one son, 19 grandkids, and 21 great-grandchildren. But here's what one of the daughters said about her mother. Dolores had no hobbies, made no contribution to society, and rarely shared a kind word or deed in her life. 
I speak for the majority of her family when I say her presence will not be missed by many. Very few tears will be shed, and there will be no lamenting over her passing. Her family will remember Dolores, and amongst ourselves we will remember her in our own way, which were mostly sad and troubling times throughout the years. We may have some fond memories of her, and perhaps we will think of those times too. But I truly believe at the end of the day, all of us will really miss, will really only miss what we never had, a good and kind mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. I hope she's finally at peace with herself. As for the rest of us left behind, I hope this is the beginning of a time of healing and learning to be a family again. There will be no service, no prayers, and no closure for the family she spent a lifetime tearing apart. We cannot come together in the end to see to it that her grandchildren and great-children can say their goodbyes. So I say here for all of us, goodbye, Mom. Isn't that sad? My son, Ryan, he's here, but his wife is not. He's a new father. And a week into being a new father, we asked him, well, how's it going? And he said, well, it's great. Except he's either asleep, the little boy they have, or he's angry. (laughs) And I thought, that characterizes a lot of God's people. We're either asleep or angry. Dorcas was a woman who was characterized by grace and kindness and love. And when she died, she was dearly missed because she left life behind. I'm a high justice kind of person. And in times like this, when I watch the news, there is so much to be angry about. But the last thing I want to be known for is just being angry. We serve a God of grace and love and kindness. A holy God that we need to fear. But he's a good God. And we have no reason to be people who have lost our peace because of what we see on the news. The Lord Jesus is our peace. And our peace is certain. I'll close us in prayer. God, I thank you for each of these things that you've recorded for us, just practical um, lessons from people who are just as real and, um, and in need of you as we are. And that we can see, God, your supernatural work in their lives, in saving Paul and, and in this lady Dorcas, Tabitha, of the grace that you manifest through her. We thank you, God, that we can trust you in the midst of all the craziness and sanity of this world. It shouldn't surprise us, Lord, when unbelieving people act in irrational ways. We would have no soundness of mind apart from you. And it is by your work and your grace, God, that we can even tie our shoes. You're the one who holds all things together. You've saved us, Lord, through simple faith in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you brought us into peace with yourself. And I pray that we would continue in the peace of God. 
We do pray for peace for our country. But we know, God, that that ultimately has to be predicated on a right relationship with you. And we pray, God, that you would use this tumultuous time to bring many, many hearts to Jesus for their peace. We ask, God, that you would just continue to use these times in our lives to grow us, mature us, and cause us to be renewed in our fear of you. That we would not only embrace your grace, but that we would not forget that you are a holy God. Our lives are in your hands. Thank you for loving us and for being the good shepherd that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.